You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Hey church, here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means when we open the Bible to read it, we are hearing God speak. Uh, Today we'll be going through two passages. The first one is Exodus chapter 15 verses 1 to 21. And the second one is from Romans chapter 6 verse 1 to 13. Let's read the Bible together. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and his rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The water heaped up at the blast from your nostrils. The current stood like a firm dam. Firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed in the heart. Uh, in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue and I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. But you blew them with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? revered with praises, performing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. When the peoples hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the water back, uh, sorry, the water of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then the prophetess Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women came out following her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 13. 
what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace might multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were also baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer, no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Uh, Friends, there's a great thing that often happens or that occasionally happens to preachers. Uh, That is that they're invited to preach on whatever they like. (laughs) And uh, that's a great blessing. And so that's what you've got today. Uh, This is a sermon which is just a bit in the middle of our series that we're going through. And uh, I'm preaching it, but I got to choose the passage. So you get to enjoy what I enjoy. So let's, let's pray and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you for this passage from Exodus. Thank you for your rescue of your people. And Father, please teach us through it so that we might know also what it is to praise you, the Redeemer and the Creator. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Brian Brian Keenan went to Beirut in 1985 for a change of scene from his local town, Belfast. He became headline news when he was kidnapped by fundamentalist Shiite militiamen and for four and a half years he was held captive by them, shut off from all news, all contact with anyone else other than his jailers. These are some of his thoughts of that time. He says this, The world that has forgotten me has no meaning for me. I am thrust suddenly into agonizing torrents of tears. I am weeping, not knowing from where the tears come or for what reason. How long have I wept for? I drift into exhaustion with melancholic sobs. For many days now I have tried to scream, but nothing will come out of me. No sound, no noise, nothing. I am full of nothing. My prayers rebound on me as if all those words I sent up were just poured back upon me like an avalanche tumbling around me. I'm bereft even of God. Now, I realize 
that Brian Keenan's experience is an extreme one. I know that most of us have never, have probably never experienced what that man experienced in that time. However, nearly every one of us has probably felt helpless and without hope at some point in their existence. Hopelessness, helplessness, these words strike terror in our psyche, in our hearts. For there is nothing, friends, more terrifying as being without help and without hope. God's ancient people in Egypt had felt it. They cried out to God in great angst. And the book of Exodus tells us that the God of all the earth heard their cry, he saw their misery, he remembered, he knew, he came down, then he brought them into a formal covenant with them. It was a two-sided covenant outlined in chapters 19 to 24 of Exodus with a focus on chapters 19 and 20. Basically, in this covenant, the Lord promised to be their God and to care for them. And then he speaks of their response back. Their part of the covenant was to live by the law of the covenant as he would outline it to them. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments, which you can read in chapter 19. That's all by way of introduction. You might wonder where we're going. Well, I can tell you, it's a terrific place. So hang on in there. That's the big picture. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to focus on a passage that occurs immediately after God's rescue of the people from Egypt. It's in Exodus 15. And I want you to turn to it in your Bibles with me or follow online, or not online, but in front of you. It is a tremendous passage where the Lord's people remember God's great rescue of them. And they do it in song. And let me tell you, the the remarkable thing about this is this song is probably one of the oldest pieces of continuous poetry in the Hebrew Bible. It's something very, very very special. Scholars agree that it is one of the most ancient, most radical and most important poems of the whole of the Old Testament. It is known as the Song of the Sea. And what it is, is is an outburst of praise toward God. A spontaneous outpouring of emotion by a group of people who had experienced God's rescue in the great events of the Exodus. And what we're going to do today is look at just one theme in it. You see, I consider that this theme that we look at today is one of the strongest theological themes in both the Exodus and the whole of the Bible. It's profound and if you grasp it, you'll grasp some great truths about God and his ways in his world. It is a theme that is mentioned on page one of the Bible. And it is mentioned in the last few pages of the Bible. And it undergirds much in between. So let's get started and let's have a look at it together. Now the first thing I want you to notice is the tenses that are used here in this song. Look at verses 4 to 10. Can you see it there? These verses are largely cast in the past tense. That is, they focus on what God has done in the past. But look at verse 11. It's cast in the present tense. The Lord is glorious in holiness. He is revered with praises. He does perform wonders. Then look at verses 13 through to 21. Those verses are set in the future tense. God will lead his people and the nations will hear of what he's done and they will shudder at it. In other words, this poem is carefully crafted so that it conveys a sense of past, present, future. 
It is about God's past actions for his people, his present actions for his people, and his future actions for his people that will come. So can you hear what I'm saying? This is not only a song about God. It is a poem about God's incredible plans for his people in his world. Now let's have a look at the content together. First of all, we're told at the beginning and the end of the song who sang it. In verse 1 we're told Moses and the Israelites sang. The term probably means all the people of Israel. In verse 20 we're told that Miriam and the women sing. Now we don't know exactly what that means. It could mean that all Israel sang and the women sang and then the women sang. It could mean there's a sort of responsive singing that was going on here. But what we do know for certain is that it was a great event and all of Israel burst into song about what God had done. They were overwhelmed by it. And verses 1 and 2 tell us the reason. It's a song of praise because God has triumphed. It's a song of delight in God's great victory. It's a victory that has exalted him and brought him glory. It's a victory that has brought his people salvation. Now look at verse 3. The Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. There's no mistaking the language here. This is battle imagery of the ancient world. The Lord is portrayed as a warrior king who is fighting Israel's battles and defeating her enemies. He holds out his hand in battle, verse 6, and his hand is glorious in power. It shatters the enemies. But look at the pinnacle of the poem. Look at verse 11. The Israelites are clear. There is no other one like the Lord. He's above every other so-called God. Look at and listen to verse 11. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? And then the last section of the poem, God is presented as leading his people. The language of verses 13 to 18 is strikingly different from the first half. No longer is God a warrior king. Instead, he's a shepherd king who leads his people to safety. The journey to the promised land that, they, that is about to take place is presented as a victory march. The passage of God's people will be like going through the waters of the sea. Terrified nations will just part and make way for God's people. Make a ready way for Israel. And as, God, as God rescued them from Egypt, he will just as easily bring them into the promised land. He will be with them in that land just as he was with them as he passed through the waters. He'll plant them in the land and he'll be with them and he will reign over them forever and ever. There we go. Now, having done all of this, I want you to think about where Exodus begins. Think back, scratching around in your brains, back to the beginning of Exodus. You see, in Exodus 1, how is God remembered? Well, if you look carefully, he's remembered as the creator. His creative purposes, though, are focused in a particular people, Israel. And they are in Israel is increasing and multiplying and Pharaoh doesn't like it. Do you remember that part of the story? 
Pharaoh sets out, therefore, to stop Israel increasing and multiplying. Pharaoh is therefore a man of anti-creation. Does that make sense? Anti-creation. He's trying to stop God's creative purposes in God's world. He's an anti-God agent. With that in mind, I want you to hear and see the creation illusions in this poem. Look at verses 5 and 8. The word floods are the same words used in Genesis 1 and 2, or chapter 1 verse 2, to describe that watery deep. Do you remember the watery deep in Genesis 1 that existed before God gave form to the world? And it's over those waters that God spoke and there was light and life and form and order. In one sense, therefore, water is the enemy of God's order. But in Genesis 1, God simply speaks and the waters are conquered and put in their place and order is imposed upon the world. I wonder if you can see what the writer is therefore doing here. Pharaoh wanted to reverse God's order in the world. He had broken God's created order. He defeated and, and God acted. He divided the sea again. Just like he did at creation. Put it in its place. He defeated the forces of disorder. He brought his people through the waters to a place where they might do what God had intended for them. In other words, he did a creation event again. Can you hear all these illusions here? This is echoing back to Genesis 1 to 3. God is doing it again at a specific point in history and at a specific time. But there are other illusions to Genesis 1. What is it? What is the next one that's major? It is... The hint of rest. God works for six days, doesn't he, in Genesis 1? And then he rests. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and although he tells them to work the garden, it's clear that he wants them to rest in his presence. But let me tell you that there's not been much resting for Israel under Pharaoh. They had been slaves and prisoners under a cruel bondage of a fierce king, Pharaoh. With that in mind, look at how the poem ends. Look at verses 17 and 18. Do you see what God will do? He'll bring his people to a new place, a place just like Eden. <laughs> he'll bring them and he'll plant them in the mountain of his inheritance. He'll bring them to the place where he himself dwells. And he'll grant them sanctuary and rest and he'll be in the midst of them and the Lord will reign over them forever and ever. Can you see what this writer is doing? Can you see what God is doing? So there are some hints of Genesis and creation that occur in our passage. There are more, but those are the ones that are the most obvious. Why are they there, do you think? Why, why would Moses express them this way? Why would God talk about them this way? Why is the writer so concerned with creation? What, what's he doing by giving us these hints all the way through his writing? Let me explain it this way. The Old Testament makes clear that the Exodus is the great act of rescue and salvation in Old, the Old Testament. The great act the one that you look back to if you want to remember. 
It's, a God's, it's God's great act of redemption, redeeming his people. But I want you to notice how he redeems. He redeems by creating again. Let me put it another way. You can define redemption, the word redemption, redeeming something, as re, the re-establishment of God's created order at a specific time and place. Let me say that again. You can define redemption as the re-establishment of God's created order at a specific time and place. So in other words, when, God's re- when, when God redeems things, what is he actually doing? He's saying, I'm going to put things back in order. I'm going to fulfill my purposes in history, in this place, at this time. Redemption is about taking things back to God's norm. It's about making them new again. It's about setting things right again. It's about re-establishing what we had in Genesis 1 at a specific time, at a specific place. It's about restoring things to the way God wants them, not how humans want them. Now, if I'm right, you'd expect to see that elsewhere in the Bible, wouldn't you? If my theory is right, you might expect to see it popping up all sorts of other places. And you do. For example, if you read the book of Isaiah, God talks about bringing his people back from the exile into Babylon. Oh, sorry, sorry, from the exile in Babylon. And when he does, guess which book he goes to to use his language, to get his language from? It's Exodus. So the book of Isaiah talks about God bringing his people back from exile in Babylon. And when he, when Isaiah does it, he talks about a new exodus and a new creation. He will make things new again. But if I'm right, then you'd expect to see that sort of language in the New Testament as well, wouldn't you? Because it's all from God. Let's check it out in three places. Have your Bibles open at 2 Corinthians 4. Paul's talking about his own ministry. This is centuries and centuries after what we've just looked at. And he says that his ministry was to bring people to know Jesus. And then he talks about opposition to that ministry from Satan. And look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 6. And I want you to look for the language that is used or hear the language that is used. He says this, But if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake or for Jesus' sake. And listen to this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Can you hear that? Paul is telling us that Satan has set himself up against God 
He's opposed God's purposes, which is to bring people into relationship with the true God. He's blinded the eyes of unbelievers so they cannot see the truth about Jesus. How is God going to change this? By doing a creation again in the very beings of people. He speaks his word like he did over the chaotic, deep waters of the first day of creation. And he says, let light shine out of darkness. And what is the word he speaks? It's the word of the gospel. It's the word about Jesus. And that word brings light where there once was darkness and satanic influence. Life where there once was death. Order where there once was chaos, just like Genesis 1 to 3. God redeems his people by doing a creation again. Now I want you in your Bibles to flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 and listen carefully. Look at what, and look at what Paul says. Therefore, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he, she, is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Friends, please understand, this is profound and it will help you know what it means to be Christian and know what God has done in his world. Becoming a Christian, you see, is all about going back to what God intended in the first place. It's about returning to how things were meant to be. And that happens when the word of Christ is spoken out into the world and is received into receptive hearts. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. The chapters before this chapter, you see a huge cosmic battle between God and the forces of evil. God and the evil one. And God triumphs over his enemies and over the enemies of his people. And I want you to come with me as we read and see the results. The writer of Revelation says this. Then I saw a new heaven. Notice, notice the language. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea, did you hear that? The sea was no more. I also saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death, death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, look, look, I am making everything new. And he also said, right, for these words are faithful and true. 
This is grand words, isn't it? This is, this is the stuff of theology that runs all the way through the Bible. Did you notice that verse 1 says, no longer any sea? It's a way of saying that the forces of disorder are totally done away with now in this new world. But there's more. You see, the larger picture tells us about God's purposes in his world. His purposes are to return the, way, the world to the way he intended it. It's to return it to a place where humans live with God and with each other in peace and harmony. How will God accomplish this great thing? Well, he will need to replace chaos with order, death with life, darkness with light. And in Exodus, how did he do it? By overturning Pharaoh and setting himself among his people and his law. But in the New Testament, how does he do it? He does it by sending his son into the world to die. To die. And through the death of his son, Satan is defeated and relationship with God is made possible. It's through the death of his son that things are set right again. That is why the last pages of the Bible... Do you remember what the pictures are in the last pages of the Bible? A lamb in the midst of a garden city. The lamb is the means by which all things will be made new. Jesus is God's way for setting things right again, for accomplishing God's great purpose in his world. Friends, I hope you stayed with me today. We have come a long way and we've gone from Genesis through to Revelation. So that's a lot. And most of you seem to still be there. But can you see the main point? Can you see the main point? Let me put it to you this way. When you read the Bible's analysis of humans, you find that our deepest desire is to be independent from God. Page three gets us there. I am like that, you are like that. And our experience tells us that the Bible is right. We find it very hard, don't we, to do what God wants. In fact, we find ourselves helpless to do what God wants. We cannot consistently do it. We cannot make ourselves pleasing to him. We cannot stop being sinful. This is the painful reality of living as a human. And that's where the doctrine that I've been talking about today comes in and comes into its own right. Do you remember Exodus 15? Were there any humans present and doing it? No. God did it himself. God did it himself. He restored things to the way he intended and he did not need any help. He waged war on disorder like a mighty warrior and won. What about Genesis? What about the first day of creation? Were there any humans present? Did God need humans to make the world? No. He did it himself. He made things the way he intended and he didn't need any help doing it. 
He waged war on disorder and chaos like a mighty warrior and one. He created and it was. He spoke his word and things were put into place. Can you see why this doctrine we just snapped at in Exodus is so important and in Genesis? It's so important because it tells us how God can make us right. How? By doing an act of creation. Again, by speaking his word about his son Jesus the Christ into the disorder of our lives. By bringing light where there's darkness and life where there's death. By creating new worlds within us that we could not create ourselves. Friends, we cannot make ourselves pleasing to God. We cannot make ourselves what God intended us to be. No, but God can. And as we trust in Jesus, God will. He will make us new creations. As we trust in God's word, in Jesus, God will bring the broken creation back into alignment with his purposes. He will make things new. It's a wonderful truth. If God's the creator, if we take the first page of the Bible and follow it through, if God is a creator, he can make things new wherever he likes. Whenever he likes. However he likes. But he's chosen the way to do it. It's by a word. And if he can do that, he can make us holy. And he can make us what we are not by our nature. He can do it because he's the creator. Can you see now why those Israelites on the side of that sea got so carried away, (laughs) sang such good songs? They got so carried away because God was for them. God was for them. He was a great warrior who fought for them. He was a great king who gave them rest from their enemies. He is their saviour. He is their God. They are his people. God is God and he alone was God and is God. So we can get carried away too, can't we, as God's Christian people. Lord God, who among who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? Who is like you, revered with praises, performing wonders? Who is like you? But let's not stop there. You see, the rest of the book of Exodus flows from this great event and it tells us that responding to the God who creates and redeems involves living with him and before him appropriately. It involves being in covenant with him and it involves hearing his word, living by that word, not breaking fellowship with him by disobeying his word, loving him, loving each other. Friends, the book of Exodus is about God the creator redeeming his people. He redeems them from something and he redeems them for something. Redeems them from slavery. Redeems them for fellowship with him. And that fellowship requires obedience and changed lives. The same is true for us who are redeemed from the slavery of sin. That's what a Christian is, someone who's been redeemed from slavery to sin. 
we are redeemed to relationship with God and to obedience to him. It was true in the Exodus, true for the Christian. Now, with that in mind, we are going to try and wrap things up and I'm going to wrap things up by reading a passage to you that we've already read. And now I want you to have new ears, new ears to hear what it says. Ears theologically formed by everything that's gone up till this point. Romans 6. Just listen to it. Listen to it and soak it in. What should we say then? Should, should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or, says Paul, are you unaware that all of us who have been baptised into Christ were baptised into his death? We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by, for the, by the glory of the Father, so we may walk in the newness of life. For if, if we have been united with him in, his like, in the likeness of his death, we'll certainly be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since, since a person who's died is free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, won't die again. Death no longer rules over him, so only life remains, as it were. So you too consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you might obey its desires and don't offer any parts of it to, to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those alive from the dead. Friends, if you're Christian here tonight, that is what you are. You are alive from the dead. For what? So that you might offer yourselves back to him who saved you. And offer the parts of your whole being to him as weapons for righteousness. Sisters and brothers in Christ, you've done very well tonight. This has not been easy. <laughs> And most of you have stuck with me. But I want to tell you more than anything else, what this passage has shown us is who you are. Who you are. Who I am. And you know what my closing words will be? Be who you are. Be who you are. Daily die to sin. Daily live for God who redeemed you with his powerful word of his son. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't offer your bodies in part or in whole for unrighteousness. No, as those alive from the dead because of Jesus, offer your whole being to God for a life of righteousness. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the new life you have given us in him. Please, we pray, continue to be at work in us so that we might live godly lives that reflect our righteous status through and in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.